Almost everyone loves a mystery. Gnosticism made mystery their drawing card to bring people into their camp of secret knowledge. The Apostle Paul countered this with his own knowledge of the mystery which had been hidden for ages, but is now revealed. You can share in Paul's understanding of the mystery as you listen for the next 16 minutes. The title of the message today is The Magnanimous Mystery. Does that look mysterious enough? <clears throat> Most everyone loves a good mystery. Not only does the Bible appear to be a mystery to many, but it also claims that it has a mystery to reveal. Now, Gnosticism was a philosophy in vogue during Paul's day, which claimed to be a higher mystery than most were familiar with. Many of the churches that Paul was affiliated with were being influenced in some way through this philosophy. Now, Gnosticism has never really lost its appeal, and is the, it's basically at the basis of what today many call New Age thinking. Uh, it's, it's Gnosticism. The word is a Greek word in origin. We get the word gnosis is the Greek word for knowledge. And it's the one that we translate as knowledge in the New Testament. Now, different aspects of the philosophy infiltrate the church and cause a heretical thinking, which leads people away from the truth that is in Jesus. And that's why Paul addressed it. Because he's a, he addresses the idea of Gnosticism in almost all of his letters in, in one form or another. Gnosticism claims that it has a higher knowledge that only the initiated may access. In fact, I went to, I went to a site uh, online which listed the six core beliefs of Gnosticism and they wouldn't let me in. A block came up which said, and I quote, you're not ready for this kind of knowledge. Now, how did it know how stupid I was? I don't know. But having a special knowledge that others don't appeals to those who would like to think of themselves as being superior in understanding the mysteries of this world. And that's the way Paul begins this section of his letter to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 and 5, he says, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now, Paul says that he spoke plainly when he presented the gospel. He didn't use high-sounding phrases or words or any kind of esoteric language. Now, for those of you who can remember the 60s and 70s, sorry, Lauren. Someone would rattle off, rattle off something which had penetrated their brain through the marijuana smoke, and then someone else would say, wow, man, that's really heavy. What they really meant was, I didn't understand a single thing you were saying. Now we use the phrase, it's complicated, to avoid having to explain that which we ourselves don't understand. 
Speaking in a way that no one understands may make you appear exalted in the minds of others, but it does little in the way of communication. However, immediately after this, Paul begins to talk about a secret wisdom, as we see in the next two verses. In 1 Corinthians 2, 6 and 7, he says, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age, or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Now, if you can see it here, Paul is using the very language of the Gnostics to gain the attention of his readers. Notice, though, that he is talking about a wisdom that is different from the normal wisdom of the people. He says that it is a secret and hidden wisdom which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Notice that the purpose is our glory, not God's. What Paul has done here is to put down the idea of the Gnostic wisdom because it focused on confusing people. Then he picks up on the idea of a knowledge or wisdom that is superior to what people are looking for in Gnosticism. Now, this is something that God had decreed and hidden before the ages began, but has now been revealed to Paul. So I want us to take a few moments today to dig into this mystery which was hidden, but is now revealed for our glory. We should understand, though, that Paul was one of many who spoke of God hiding things and keeping them a mystery. We find in Isaiah chapter 48 and verse 6, you have heard, now see all this, and will you not declare it? From this time forth, I announce to you new things, hidden things that you have not known. So Isaiah declared that there was mysteries that needed to be revealed. And even Jesus said, as recorded in Matthew chapter 11, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and reveal them to little children. So Jesus declared that the things of God are not accessible by the ordinary means of man's logic and reasoning. And yet those of us in the West continue to try to understand God and his ways with our natural mind. The Western mind is analytical, logical, and it's simply not comfortable with any kind of an unsolvable mystery. The Eastern mind, however, the mind of the Orient, is quite comfortable with mystery. The Eastern Church is known for its embrace of mysticism, while the Western Church is known for its logic and rejection of mysticism. I find it interesting, though, that God chose to reveal himself to an Eastern people who were comfortable with mystery and to have a book written for us by Eastern thinking people. But then God calls Paul, who is a mixture of the two, both the Western and the Eastern, brought up as a Jew with a penchant for mystery, but educated with the logic of the Romans he explains this to the Ephesian church 
In chapter 3, verses 1 and 3, we read, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. Now, until Jesus came along, all the things of God seemed to belong only to the Jews. Jesus began, began to break down the wall which separated the Jews from others when he ministered to the outcasts of Jewish society and also those outside Judaism, such as the Syrophoenician woman. And even though John the Baptist declared it, and even though Jesus demonstrated it, and even though Jesus told the apostles to include everyone, they still didn't get it. But Paul got it. And he wrote much of his letters to the churches explaining this mystery. Continuing in Ephesians 3, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. We can see from this one verse that when we look at Scripture, we need to be able to understand there is a progressive revelation. Things build on one another. Okay? It's so often we take one little section way back here and make it the focal point of whatever it is we're trying to say, prove, show, whatever. We need to understand there is progressive revelation. And then Paul says plainly what the mystery is in the next verse. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. There are three aspects to this mystery. We are fellow heirs. We are members of the same body. And we are partakers of the promise in Christ. Now, I titled this message, The Magnanimous Mystery, based on this verse. Magnanimous means generous or forgiving, especially toward a rival or less powerful person. Gentiles, those who are outside of Judaism, are fellow heirs along with the Jews and the promises of God. Not only heirs, but members of the same body. Paul explains this more fully earlier in his letter to the Ephesians. Back in chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, we read, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, that was between Jew and Gentile, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Now, none of this was understood by the Jews, those whom we call God's chosen people. They were chosen in Abraham to bring to light the knowledge of God for all the world to see and understand, but they kept it for themselves. They were more proud of their being separate than they were of being God's choice 
as a vessel for the gospel. Paul explains this in a little more detail in his letter to the Colossians, where he says in chapter 1, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He explains the mystery. The mystery, which is strange to the natural mind, is Christ in us. It is Christ in us, which is the hope of glory. You remember at the beginning, I told you that the mystery was for our glory, but we imparted a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. It is Christ in us, which is the hope of glory. What does that mean, Christ in us? What does a child understand when we say to them, you need to have Jesus in your heart? We were talking about the concrete level of thinking of a child. The only heart they know is the fist-sized muscle beneath the fifth rib. How can Jesus be there? Could it be that maybe we are forced to face a magnanimous mystery which cannot be solved by a rational mind. What does glory mean? What is this hope of glory? The word which is translated glory primarily denotes an opinion, an estimation, repute in the New Testament. It is always, though, a good opinion, praise, honor, an appearance, commanding respect, magnificence, excellence. It's always as good things. Christ in you brings all these things into play. You should have a good opinion of yourself if Christ is in you. Our weakness, though, is that we value the opinion of others more than we value God's opinion of us. We've all got friends who struggle with that. They're so worried about what other people think. But low self-esteem is the result of not knowing our true identity in Christ. Now we've looked at the first two aspects of this magnanimous ministry, fellow heirs and members of the same body. The third aspect is the most amazing of all to me. We are partakers of the promise in Christ. And Peter lets us know what this is in one of his letters. In 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3 and 4 we read, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them, the promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. God, in his magnanimous, all-inclusive, loving nature, has included you in the divine dance of being one with him. 
Being one with him means that we partake of the divine nature which is in Christ Jesus himself. The Lord's prayer, which he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, is being fulfilled in us. He prayed there before his crucifixion that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. There's a divine dance there, big fancy word called perichoresis. Okay, but it's a dancing around all together, one in the Lord. Now, I trust that that thought is exciting to you as it is to me, that it is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Amen.